tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift Vieira's Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight only on Disney Plus. Absolutely not helpless. There are things we can do to win this battle. I think that speaks to the importance of keeping our environments as sterile as possible. What we know about this virus is that it is very likely spread through something called droplet transmission. That's why people should stay home if they're sick. The question is, are we willing to make the sacrifices to do it? Well, hello, everyone. You have found your way back to fill in the blanks. And boy, do I have a lot of blanks to fill in today. And this is a very different version of fill in the blanks. Today, part of what you're going to get is part of a Dr. Phil episode. And if you're thinking, well, I watch all the Dr. Phil episodes, so I don't need to listen to this podcast. Let me tell you why that's wrong. I'm getting ready to add a lot of information that's not in the episode. And we're talking about coronavirus. We're talking about COVID-19, the biggest issue in the world right now. I did an episode about this that's very important. If you watched it, you would probably want to watch it again. But I'm very limited in time on Dr. Phil, and I am not limited in time here. I had the top medical experts in the world involved, but I had to edit that down. We probably shot for two hours, and I had to cut that down to 42 minutes. I'm not cutting it down here. You're going to get to hear everything we talked about. And these brilliant men and women and some survivors of coronavirus that have been on cruise ships really tell us how all of that went and what the experience was. You're going to get a lot more than I was able to give on the broadcast. I've been very frustrated with how this pandemic has been politicized by both sides. If you know me, you know that I don't talk politics. I don't take political positions on Dr. Phil, on the podcast. I just don't do it. I don't think it's the right thing for me to do. I've been very frustrated that both sides, Republicans and Democrats alike, have politicized this pandemic and used it to try to gain political advantage. And that, to me, is just absolutely disgusting. This is a time that you just need to put down your political differences and positions and come together and everybody pull in the same direction and get us to safe ground. 
And I lose a lot of respect for people that try to exploit this situation. I have spent a lot of the last several days combing through every scientific source, every source that purely looked at the science and gleaned what I could glean to share with you that I thought was buried, things that were lost in the rhetoric, things that were lost in the back and forth between the different news channels and the different entities and bodies that had agendas to run. And I wanted to share that stuff with you. Obviously, I approach a lot of this from a psychological standpoint. I am not a microbiologist. I'm not an immunologist. I am not an infectious disease expert. So I don't pretend to be, but I'm going to tell you some things that they have taught me and shared with me that I've sifted through and pulled out into sharp relief that I think will be of some value to you. And I'm going to share some psychological aspects of this that I think are important. I'm seeing a lot of panic out there. I'm in LA and I'm seeing people strip the grocery store shelves. And I don't get why everybody is hoarding toilet paper. What is that all about? Everybody uses it at the same rate. I see people coming out with nothing but baskets of toilet paper. Did you not walk by a couple other things you needed while you were in there? It's really odd to me. My point is people are panicking and they're having anxiety and Look, I'm not saying this isn't a serious concern. It definitely is a serious concern. I get that. But let's talk about this from a psychological standpoint for a moment. What I find that gets people the most upset is if they're in a situation that's threatening and they feel helpless. I don't know about you, but that's when I really feel anxiety is if I know something is going to happen, there's nothing I can do about it. Whether it's a national disaster, hurricane, tornado, whatever, and there's just nothing I can do about it. But let me tell you, we are not helpless here. We're absolutely not helpless. There are things we can do to win this battle. The question is, are we willing to make the sacrifices to do it? Are people that set policy and can enforce certain things willing to step up and do it and do it in a timely fashion? But whether they do or not, we as individuals, as families, as communities, we have the ability to help ourselves. And I've talked to the infectious disease specialist. I've talked to the immunologist. I've talked to the public health officials. And everybody comes to a consensus that there are certain things that have to happen in order for us to defeat this pandemic. And pandemic means that there is a pathogen that really is infectious. Number two, it goes from one person to another, meaning we can infect each other. And three, that it's worldwide. Can we defeat this pandemic? Well, yes. And to do that, we need to do like five things. Number one, we need to aggressively find all the cases. 
So if you're in a certain community, you need to find the people that are infected. And common sense tells you why, because if you don't, then you can't take those people out of the mix so they don't continue to infect more people. And to do that, we have to have comprehensive testing or people need to recognize what the signs are and take themselves out of the mix. But number one, we need to aggressively find all of the cases. Step number two, social distancing. We have to isolate those cases once we find them. Number one, we have to aggressively find all the cases. Number two, we have to isolate those cases. And then number three, we have to care for those people in every way while they're isolated, including emotionally. If you have a family member, for example, that has the virus and they're isolated, take care of them while they're isolated. Emotionally, check on them, support them, ask about them. Make sure they have food, water, medicine, comfort, and care. We have to take care of these people. Isolation doesn't need to be lonely. It doesn't mean they are forgotten. And number four, we have to mobilize the public by teaching them the symptoms so they can self-police. Because you can find out you have the virus by being tested, but you might have it for three days before you get tested. But you can recognize the symptoms early on. Spike in fever, a headache, a dry cough, difficulty in breathing. If you have things that suggest to you that you might have the virus, then you should self-isolate until you can find out. That is a powerful tool if we mobilize the public by teaching what the symptoms are so they can self-police. If they have it for three days before they get a test or test results, they can infect 50 people who can infect 50 people each. And that's how it spreads so fast. And then, fifth, we have to make our hospitals ready. We have to train our hospitals on how to handle this. We have to train the staff. We have to get the supplies in there. And if we can do the first four, then we're not going to get into a situation of catastrophic medicine. And catastrophic medicine is a situation where we overwhelm the system because everybody shows up at once. That's where you have a hospital that has six respirators and 16 people show up that need them. And so you have 10 people out in the hall that can't get on a respirator that needs one. And so you have to make very difficult choices about who gets one and who doesn't. And maybe those people that don't, they die from lack of care, not because it wasn't a treatable disease, but because there was such a spike in demand that something that would ordinarily have been treatable, they die from neglect. So we just have to recognize that we're not helpless here. Aggressively identify the cases, isolate those cases, take care of those people while they're isolated, 
mobilize the public so they can self-police and pull themselves out of the stream of social discourse early on, and then make sure that our hospitals are ready. And they set up a way so somebody just doesn't come stumbling into a waiting room saying, I think I have coronavirus, and interact with 30 people in a waiting room. They need to have a way in for these people where they can be cordoned off away from the rest of the hospital population. And if you recognize you have the power to do these things, this can absolutely be turned around in a relatively short period of time. Major League Baseball has been canceled. March Madness has been canceled. The NBA has been canceled. School systems are being shut down. All of these major steps will stem the tide of this being spread. We have a lot of things in our favor right now, according to the medical experts. Not the political people, the medical experts. I'm telling you what they've been telling me, and we need to de-stress ourselves. I'm telling you that because stress compromises your immune system. If you're stressed, you're not sleeping well, you're burning up your resources, and you're more susceptible to infection. So if you're walking around in panic mode, if you're walking around with anxiety, then you're compromising your ability to fight off an infection. So we have to deal with mental health. I say you want to de-stress. Let me talk about how you do that. Number one, limit the sources and the time that you spend obsessing about this. Look, you can really plug into this anytime you want to. It doesn't matter if it's 7 a.m., 7 p.m., 3 a.m., whatever. You can find a channel where you can obsess about this. You need to limit the sources that you get your information from, and you need to limit the time you spend obsessing about this. Maybe you check in twice a day. You check on it in the morning. You check on it again at five in the afternoon. And then during the rest of the day, you get back to as much of a routine life as you possibly can. And you've really got to be careful about social media. Let me tell you, there are some real wacky things going on on social media right now. And maybe people think it's funny. Maybe those people are deranged. I don't know. There was a study floating around recently that was purportedly from Stanford University. And it was saying things like, if you can hold your breath for 10 seconds without distress, then you don't have coronavirus. It said, drink lots of water because you'll wash the virus down into your stomach and the stomach acid will kill it. These are just made up things that somebody put together and put a big name on it. And it was getting passed around like wildfire. It was spreading faster than the coronavirus. It just simply wasn't true. So you have to limit the sources to places you trust and then limit the time you spend obsessing about this and getting information. Be very careful about social media. And then number two, monsters live in the dark. So if you're going to play the what-if game, 
play it out to the end. What if you do get coronavirus? Well, 80% of the people have very mild symptoms. It is not a death sentence. 80% of the people have aches and pains, and even those that get some type of pneumonia or some kind of lung distress don't require hospitalization. It's transient. So your chance of getting it are statistically small. And then if you do get it, there's an 80% chance that you will have mild symptoms for a few days, and then you will get over it. In China, a week ago, they reported that they had had 80,000 cases, and approximately 70,000 people had already recovered from it. So most people that get it recover from it just fine. That doesn't mean 10,000 died. It just means 10,000 haven't already recovered. Something like 3,300 people died from it, some number like that, less than 5%. And a lot of those people were elderly people with underlying conditions like COPD or asthma, lung cancer, things of that nature. If you get it, you'll probably be sick for a short period of time, and then you'll go back to work. Over half the people in the world that have contracted coronavirus have already recovered from it and returned to their lives. Now, more people are getting it, so that number changes all the time, but that's true as I sit here right now. My point is, don't let this be a boogeyman that strikes fear in your heart to the point that you are so distressed that you compromise your immune system. A third thing you can do if you're going to be involved in this, give to others that maybe are at higher risk than you are. If there are elderly people in your neighborhood or in your life and they're having to isolate, find out if you can deliver food to their doorstep. Find out if you can maybe call them and chat with them for 30 minutes a day. FaceTime with them. Do something where you give back. I promise you the best way to fill a need in yourself is to give to others what you need the most. And if you're really, really struggling and you need to get help, choose that help very carefully. Don't go to someone that's dealing with it in a worse way than you are, where the two of you get together and lather yourselves up to a worse position than you were, someone that thinks about it the same way you do. If you get help, be sure it really is help and not someone that you just commiserate with. Next, it's really important to maintain order in your life. You really want to keep as much routine in your life as possible. If right now maybe you have time off work because your work is shut down, spend as much time outside as you can. Fresh air. This is not an airborne virus. For you to get it, you have to come in contact with it. It's got to live on a surface that you touch, and then you touch your face, your eyes, your mouth, your nose. Someone has to 
sneeze or cough and send a droplet into your eyes, nose, mouth. So it's not in the air outside. If you've got a garden, work in your garden. Walk, do whatever you want to do, but maintain as much order as you possibly can. And don't worry and get down on yourself if you do worry some. Just try to control this. Realize that, as I said in the beginning, we're not helpless. And if you are social distancing, if you are isolating yourself, use technology. Check in, text, email, FaceTime. And if you contact someone that has quarantined themselves or they have the virus and they've isolated themselves, get in touch with them, show concern, share knowledge that you may have learned, and very importantly, listen to them. Listen to how they're feeling, what they're thinking. Allay their fears, their anxieties, and maybe from listening to this very plain talk podcast, you can blow up some myths. They may have some misunderstandings that you can clear up for them. But use technology to stay connected if you're social distancing. It doesn't mean that you need to just completely drop out of the human race and be lonely. We're in an electronic age today. This is one of the good things we can do about it. So hopefully you'll do that so you don't feel so alone. Our goals right now in our community, which you can support, is containment where we restrict travel in and out. We try to keep everything static. And then mitigation. And mitigation is the social distancing, canceling events, educating yourself so you can self-police, all the things that I was talking about before. We have so much that we can do. And look, the world does have to go on. I worry that more lives are going to be destroyed from financial ruin of shutting down businesses and economic impact than will ever be ruined by the virus. The goal is to strike a balance between protecting health, minimizing economic and social disruption, while respecting human rights. We don't want to put people in jail. We don't want to put them in camps. So we want to strike a balance between protecting your and your neighbor's health, create a problem with economic and social disruption any more than we have to, and we've got to respect human rights. So you know those are very, very important goals, and you can support that. And if everybody pulls in the same direction, it will really, really help us. It will just really, really help us. And that's what I mean when I say you're not helpless. You have something to contribute here. And you know, when I said limit your sources, you can contribute there too. Make sure it's a trusted source. Take the politics out of this like I did. And don't worry about making a run on a store with hand sanitizer. Every immunologist that I've talked to has said the best hand sanitizer is soap and water. Hot water and soap. And you don't need to make a hand sanitizer. Hot water and soap or dilute bleach, isopropyl alcohol, you have the things right there you need. You don't need to go try to build something. And make no mistake, 
wearing a surgical mask does not protect you from getting the virus. That's a myth. It might protect someone else from getting it from you because if you cough or whatever, it might protect somebody from getting sprayed by your cough. But there's some research that suggests that people that wear masks tend to touch their face even more because they're adjusting the mask. So there's certainly no indication that it protects you from getting the virus. So all these people that are hoarding masks and walking around wearing masks, unless they're wearing it to protect other people, they're certainly not protecting themselves. These are just some of the myths. And as you listen to the rest of this podcast, you're going to hear some really smart doctors and scientists talk about this, and we're going to blow up some myths that you're going to really be surprised about. Some of them are just ridiculous. Corona beer sales are down for the first time ever. Seriously, Corona beer sales are down just because it sounds like coronavirus. But as you listen to this, I think you're going to get a whole lot of information in addition to what I've shared with you here. Let's pay attention to our mental health. Let's pay attention to our neighbors and ask what we can do to help someone else. It's the best possible way to fill the void. No matter where you are and who you talk to, there is undoubtedly one word that is on the minds of millions and millions of people worldwide. Coronavirus, also known as COVID-19. As a precaution, I am taping this episode, as well as several others, without an audience, as I take this public health issue very seriously. And I want to make that statement. I want to make that statement to all of the viewers that are watching. It's time that we make sacrifices concerning this outbreak. It's an outbreak that began in China and now has thousands worldwide falling ill. Here in the United States, COVID-19 is spreading rapidly and causing near panic as the death toll rises. The World Health Organization says that coronavirus can now be characterized as a pandemic, the first global infodemic, with an overabundance of false claims and cures floating the social media and it makes it harder for the average person to find trustworthy sources with accurate information. So what happens? Well, of course, people not knowing what's going on, they tend to panic because they can't get information. We have hairdressers in China taking a very creative approach to styling clients with tools attached to the end of long sticks to protect themselves. And this rideshare driver in New York was not taking any chances when he surrounded himself in a cube made of clear plastic, which was taped to the roof of his car and secured by a pole to keep it in place. People are rushing to grocery stores, emptying shelves, stockpiling water, masks, canned foods, and toilet paper. It's become near mass hysteria. Well, I've invited some of the leading experts in the medical world to help dispel the myths and bring the facts to the surface so we can remain informed and above all safe. I have separated our chairs six feet apart, which is what has been recommended as social distancing. One of the things that 
is highly recommended as one of the things that we can do to help control the transmission of this disease. So I've put it together this way as a really good example of exactly what that means and how it may feel in your life. Joining me now is Dr. Patrick Johnson and Professor Paula Cannon. Dr. Johnson is a renowned neurosurgeon and director of the spine practice at Cedar sinai Medical Center here in Los Angeles. And Paula is a distinguished professor of molecular biology and immunology at USC. So welcome to both of you. I really appreciate you being Hi. here. So this seems a bit odd that we're separated in this way, but this is what experts are referring to as social distancing in people keeping themselves apart, which creates a problem in such things as classroom and other sorts of gatherings. What do you think about that, Dr. Johnson? I think you're in keeping with the appropriate public health measures that we need to be doing and gathering in places like this, which I've been here before, and it, it's an interesting difference. Yes, it is. Seeing what it is today with such an empty place and just a few of us. And, and I think we're a little more than six feet here, actually, but yeah. that's okay. I think it's entirely consistent that uh, until this is passing or whatever it is that's going to manage this problem, I think that social gatherings like this, and I think we're doing the right things with having uh, basketball events for the conferences that are happening and, and the March Madness and all of that, all of these things I think need to be put on hold just right. the way they're being done. And I'm, I'm very happy with seeing all of those things. And if we are in fact at war here, if we're fighting against this, what has now been declared a pandemic, sacrifices have to be made. It's just that simple, true? They certainly do. And they certainly do. In the hospital, when you have surgical patients there, we all know hospitals strive just in every way possible to fight infection and that sort of thing in the hospitals. Does this create a new challenge for you in the hospital environment? Well, I think the hospitals are have their own set of problems just because of the illness of, of this type that we have with pulmonary disease. It's more in the medical world for me as a surgeon. It doesn't have the immediate impact, but it does when I'm seeing patients in my office. Right. I'm seeing many, many patients a day. I'll see 25 patients in a day. And if any one of those are a carrier, or if I were, I mean, that's a whole part of this epidemic problem yeah. is that we have daily activities. The, the individual surgical patients, we can screen those. We can make sure that we have those. But right. the hospitals are being overrun with a, a lot of these problems. And how quickly can we know whether or not someone has the disease? The can it be symptom-free for how many days before it actually shows? People can probably have anywhere from a two to seven days. This virus is probably a little bit longer, as I've learned and understood, is that yeah. most flu viruses from the influenza and the bugs that we always have, and they're still out there, uh, three, four days this one's probably got a shorter one and a shorter incubation period and potentially longer as well. They can last out to a week. Professor Cannon, this is not the same as flu, correct? There mm -hmm. is a difference here because people keep saying there have been like 60,000 people that have died from the flu right. and 3,000 that have died from coronavirus. They say that to kind of trivialize it, but the fact is this is a deadlier virus percentage-wise and in terms of being able to transmit or correct or not? Tell us so, what the truth is. So, you know, the truth is we don't really know yet. One of the things we do know about the flu is it's an awful virus. So when we compare this virus to the flu, I want to first of all say that's actually comparing it to something that's pretty bad. 
What's different, the reason that the flu is, is not something we are all terrified of is because, of course, we know that we can get a vaccine against it, and we know that there are some drugs that can work against it. So it's a terrible virus, but we don't panic about it because we know if it got bad, there are things we can do to protect ourselves. Um, for this coronavirus, I think, you know, it's still so new. We don't know how to frame it in terms of how bad it is. You know, we still don't know how many people are getting infected and showing absolutely no symptoms. And if that turns out to be a lot of people, you know, a big iceberg with a lot of uh, people not showing symptoms, then maybe, you know, at the end of the year, we'll turn around and say, it's actually not as bad as the flu. What exactly is coronavirus? Define it for people so they understand what it is medically we're talking about. Coronavirus is an organism like the flu. It's very similar to influenza in a lot of ways. It's spread in different ways. It's not a bacteria. There's, there's no cure for it. There's not an antibiotic that you can give for it. Um, we don't know a lot about the coronavirus, as Dr. Cannon was saying, but it probably has similarities to the influenza, of which we all know about, and we, we go through this every year, and we have vaccinations. But it, it's something that has some new and concerning issues because the, the potency of this and the number of deaths in relation to the overall number of people that have it may be higher. And that's what the big concern is. And this is on top of the influenza that we all live amongst every year. So this is a new and different disease. Uh, the coronaviruses have been around and, and discovered decades ago, but... This is a new outbreak, and it's having an effect on people that it didn't before. So this isn't a new virus. It's, a, is... it's a different form of a virus that's been around a long time. Okay. All right. And what causes it to do what it's done now? Why now? Okay. Why in Wuhan did this all mm -hmm. of a sudden become a thing? All right. So I'm going to get technical. Dr. Not Cannon, too, not this is, too this technical. Is your... <laughs> so the coronaviruses, there's a whole family of them out there. And most of the time they hang out in animals, especially bats for some reason. And they're kind of in their animal host and they stay there. And it's, there's like a barrier between animal viruses and humans. You know, we've got our viruses, they've got their viruses. But very occasionally, and this happens with flu as well as this new coronavirus, the virus we say jumps species. And so that could have happened one time, a, a bat virus or some other animal got into one unlucky person. Normally that doesn't happen, but when that virus got into its first human host, it kind of had a party, you know? It was in an entirely new organism. We have no natural immunity against it. And so it just, you know, this is why it can, can run rife in a body. And then from that one person, it then spread to other people. Is this something that people do need to take serious? Am I overreacting by not having an audience here are basketball games overreacting? Is this an overreaction or is this something that we just need to sacrifice and make the changes? I don't believe this is an overreaction. I, I think that we have to take it seriously because we don't know a lot of answers. I think that uh, this has a higher virulence, meaning potency, for people that are at risk. So everybody can go to the basketball game and if some people there contracted it, but they take it home to other people who are at risk, that's where it probably is the biggest issue. The healthy people that are walking around the streets or presumably would come to your show, but there may be some people there that can take it out to other people. So, right. 
And you're talking about older people that have an underlying condition, for example. Infants, young children without fully developed immune systems. Then you get on to the people that are the elder, the aged, the ones that have pulmonary disease, that have cardiac disease, they have diabetes. There are people on steroids for lots of reasons. And there are people that are uh, immunosuppressed because how many people do we have in this country that have organ transplants that are on immunosuppression? They're at risk. Right. And Dr. Right now, a lot of the universities are saying, no more campus classes, we're gonna do this all online. Is that reasonable? And should our secondary, elementary and secondary schools be going online and not having their children in classrooms right now? Okay, so so it's two different things. I'd say for the universities, and I'm I'm at USC, so my own university is now going online at least um, for the next couple of weeks. And one of the great things is we can do that. We have the technology. Thank goodness it's 2020. So we can do that, I think, with minimal disruption. And I always take the view, if we can do something that may help, we should do it. With elementary schools, you know, that's a harder call. And one of the things that we are seeing about children is actually, and this is maybe a silver lining with this virus, is when children get infected, they're really not showing much in the way of symptoms. So that's Thank goodness, because, you know, the idea of trying to keep your toddler or your preschooler, you know, from not touching their face or, you know, telling them to wash their hands, that ain't going to work. So children always are a vector to spread infectious diseases. I think it makes sense if there starts to be an outbreak in a specific area, say in Los Angeles, to have for at least a limited period of time, you know, close down some schools, see if we can get things back under control as well, because schools absolutely could spread it. Well, you made a great point. It may come December and we look back and say, well, that wasn't nearly as bad as we thought it might be. And so we did some things that maybe we didn't need to do. But I would a whole lot rather be in that situation than not do it and then get it December and you're burying tens of thousands of bodies because people didn't react. I'd rather err with an overabundance of caution than to fail to react when you should. Yeah. Absolutely. So it seems to me. Okay, so are you one of those people who are stockpiling toilet paper and wearing face masks 24-7? My next guest says these preventive measures are not only unnecessary, but also wrong for many reasons. Now, joining the conversation is, and let me let you pronounce your name instead of me butchering it for you. <laughs> Dr. Abdul Sharkawi. All right, Dr. Abdul Sharkawi. Now, an internal medicine and infectious disease specialist whose Facebook post exceeded 1.5 million shares after he called the current hysteria a pandemic. And joining us via Skype is social epidemiologist Maliwa Jones, whose recent Facebook post also went viral after she said that face masks should not be worn by the healthy public right now. So thank you as well. People are now paying attention to a lot of contaminants on the airplane. They said two out of four tray tables have E. coli, the same as if there was feces on the tables, and they're looking at the armrest and all of these sorts of things. So we live with these things around us, contaminants a lot, correct? Correct. And now this coronavirus, is this something that does live on surfaces? From what we understand, it certainly does. Uh, Exactly how long it lives on surfaces uh, is not entirely clear, uh, but there is some thought that it may live on surfaces potentially for several days. And I think that speaks to the importance of keeping our environments as sterile as possible 
and employing vig vigilant hand hygiene to prevent inanimate objects and any surfaces we're in regular contact with from becoming sources of infection. Mm -hmm. You said early on that this was a pandemic and you also said it was a panic-demic as well. What do you mean? What I mean is the pandemic refers to the actual number of cases that we're seeing worldwide. And there's certainly no shortage of information coming across news headlines or any social media feed that anybody would care to uh, frequent. Uh, the response, however, I don't think has necessarily been entirely adaptive or necessarily constructive by thousands of people. Um, I, I want to say that I certainly support the idea of having a healthy fear and level of respect for something that has gained a foothold all over the world and continues to accelerate and is not contained. I by no means want to trivialize what's going on. But I think when fear progresses to the point where it's become pure hysteria, that becomes a panic-demic. When you see people buying face masks and hoarding them and denying healthcare institutions from having them in supply to actually look after sick patients and frontline health workers not having them, that's not a good thing. When you see people avoiding every Chinese restaurant imaginable and Iranian restaurant and whole communities, that's not a good thing. When you see people stockpiling everything possible from Costco and Home Depot and holding themselves up in their homes, thinking that somehow that's going to protect them from everything else, that's not a good thing. That's the panic-demic. We don't need to see that. What we really need to see is a more measured response and understanding that the problem starts in your own home. It starts with your own behavior from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to bed at night. What are you doing to maintain a healthy environment in your own hands and in those around you? If you do that, you have a much better chance of breaking the chain of transmission for this virus and hope of hopefully getting it under control. Everyone can do that. We don't need the World Health Organization to do it. We don't need mass cancellation of every public event necessarily to do that, even though that may be helpful. Yeah. And Malia, you say that healthy people that are wearing these face masks should be ashamed of themselves, that they're taking masks that others need and that they don't need it at all. What I said uh, in my viral post was that both the CDC and WHO are recommending that healthy people not wear a face mask. And that's not because they're completely useless. Uh, what we know about this virus is that it is very likely spread through something called droplet transmission, which means that uh, it doesn't float around in the air around us. It's coughed or sneezed out of our mouth. And uh, those little droplets that come out of our mouth fly through the air on a trajectory, and then they could be breathed in by other people during that time that they're floating, or they could land on surfaces and then be picked up by other people. So that's why we have this emphasis on hand hygiene. It's really important to wash your hands and also clean the surfaces around you and avoid touching your face. Uh, the issue with the face masks is that there aren't enough of them in the world. We have a shortage of face masks worldwide, in part because people have been hoarding uh, equipment like face masks as well as all kinds of other things, toilet paper and hand sanitizer just being a few examples. And I think that kind of individualism and focus on my risks is very unhelpful and maybe even harmful to our efforts to contain the spread of this virus. 
The truth is that a face mask provides a very, very small amount of protection for a healthy person in a normal risk scenario, like walking through your grocery store. But a face mask is absolutely necessary for a, a nurse who is taking care of a COVID-19 patient. And so we really need to preserve those resources and be community-minded about our attempts to address the epidemic. So, Doctor, you say that this trade and travel restrictions are an overreaction, if I understand correctly. And Malia, you say that people should not fly, despite the fact that the CDC is not implementing those sort of restrictions. So where do y'all come down on this? Do you believe that it's an overreaction to restrict that? I think time will tell. I think that at this point in time, uh, it's difficult to condemn those decisions when we are seeing Uh, a rapid rise and escalation of new cases, especially we've seen what happened here in the United States. We've seen what happened in in New York State and obviously in in California and Washington State. Um, I'm not going to stand here and, uh, you know, say that I can be responsible, suggesting that if we can do something to contain this and prevent unnecessary public gatherings uh, as a way of combating this, that that's the wrong thing to do. Uh, I absolutely agree that you have to take some measure I do worry about where you draw the line at some point between, uh, you know, cautious judgment and overkill and you start to lose some degree of a sense of normalcy in society. And when do, when do we walk into the phase of social isolation, severe depression, uh, mental health issues for people who are completely paralyzed with fear and fear? Look, if I can't go watch the Lakers or I can't go, you know, to my favorite sporting event and I can't go, uh, you know, and appreciate my favorite musical artist, you know, is this the end of the world? Should I be in my home? Should I never go outside? Um, Am I not allowed to go to a restaurant? Will restaurants be closed? Will movie theaters close? Um, I mean, these are questions that are difficult to answer, but I do wonder if we are leaning towards that. And I would caution against... Uh, that sort of mentality being one we have to take for granted. I think we have to take this in a stepwise approach and see what's working and see what we might not need to do in the future. Would you go to a movie today? I would go to a movie today. Uh, I personally, uh, you know, em, em, em employ very strict hand hygiene. Uh, I'm generally very cognizant of who's around me. Um, and uh, my wife always ridicules me for being excessively cautious. And I'm an infectious disease specialist, so I'm a germaphobe by nature, so to speak. Um, but yes, I would go to uh, a movie uh, theater uh, in this but, day and age. But you say you're cognizant of who's around you, but by the time they've coughed or sneezed on you, it's too late. I mean, by that point, you go, hey, this is not okay. I think I'll move. Okay, you've already been coughed or sneezed on by then. Well, you know, being a healthcare professional, I'm sort of in a more unique situation. I mean, it's far more likely that I'm going to encounter somebody who is sick with right. a respiratory illness in my clinic or in the emergency room, frankly speaking, than in a movie theater. So this is where I sort of try and draw the distinction between common sense and just fear of everything else. Yeah. The world needs to go on. The world cannot be completely crippled by what's happening here. And my fear is we're leaning towards that right now. So, Dr. Johnson, should people be wearing masks? Does it help? Uh, You two were talking about that as we took a break. I don't think that people need to wear masks in the public environment. I I think that somebody who actually has the disease and is known to be infectious, whether they're known to have COVID virus or whether they have the influenza or anything else, if they're active, 
it probably would help that if they wore a mask. Now, the rest of the general public, it may protect you a little bit, but I, I think the practicality part weighs in there is that, that that's just not appropriate to have everybody wearing Dr. a mask. Yeah, so, so I'm going to bring in a different element, which is, I think, for people who are not healthcare um, professionals, sometimes you have to meet people halfway. And there's a lot of people out there who are very frightened. And I, I, I'm not sure it's going to help to sort of say to them, you're a bad person for being frightened and for hoarding a mask. So what I try to say to people is, let, let's think through why a mask might help you. And let's actually think of some alternatives. So, you know, as we've just heard, one of the values of wearing a mask if you're not infected, quite honestly, is just that by having a mask on your face, you are less able to touch your mouth and excavate your nose, shall we say. And so it stops this hand-to-face transmission, which is how... You can still touch your eyes, sir. You can still touch your eyes. You can still touch your eyes, and I've seen it. I'm going to recommend goggles as well. I've seen it. Okay? Yeah. So what I say to some of my friends, and I have a lot of friends, I'm middle-aged, you know, they craft, they quilt, they're quite, you know, creative. I say, you know what, let's let's make some little masks out of our favorite material. We have a whole bunch left over from baby showers. And they've started to make these like little kind of masks. And nobody's pretending that they're going to stop every molecule coming through. But it's kind of like, it reassures my friends and it's a way to say this, this actually just makes us mindful about what we're doing. The other thing I do, and I'm doing it right now, is I wear really stinky hand cream. You know that stuff you get for Christmas that you don't use, you, you guys probably don't, but as a woman, <laughs> believe you me, tea tree oil, poof, okay? It smells really strong and it's, it's a good reminder. So as I'm about to do this, I get this waft of tea tree oil or lavender and I go, oh yeah, keep my hands away because These are the lethal weapons in this epidemic. We infect ourselves by the things we touch, and then we are the ones that introduce it into our body. So there's common sense ways I think you can think about doing that without putting uh, the supply of real masks that are needed for healthcare workers at risk. It's a great idea is putting something on your hands that reminds you when it starts to get close to your face where you go, There's some really bad smelling (laughs) stuff. We're going to meet a couple who went on a cruise and ended up quarantined on the ship with the husband eventually being hospitalized for coronavirus. Now, John and Melanie were on board the Diamond Princess cruise ship on what was supposed to be a six-month-long dream vacation. Now, the trip took an unexpected turn after the ship was quarantined off the coast of Japan over the coronavirus concerns last month. A few days later, John tested positive. Well, Melanie and John are joining us via Skype, so thank you two for joining us. You had to be really surprised when you tested positive, John, correct? Uh, shocked the heck out of me. Um, I thought for sure that I was okay, and uh, when they, they took the swabs and came back the next day, it was, it, it was a, a huge shock for me that uh, I tested positive. And how long did it take for you to get results of the test? Uh, 24 hours. So the Japanese uh, got the test back extremely quickly. Right. And so you guys say at this point, you're not afraid of the virus at all, and you would go on another cruise. Absolutely. Yeah. Really? um, Yes, we would. Um, We we do practice uh, very good hygiene with hand washing. I think this was a really unfortunate event. for the cruise line and for us. And it, we love cruising. We won't change our life anyway to, um, we're not gonna be afraid. John, take us through this. 
because you're the first person I've talked to that actually contracted the virus and it played out. What were your symptoms? When did you know something was wrong? And what was the course? How long did it last? And what did you experience? Okay. Uh, it was about six days into quarantine. Um, I, the cruise ship had given us all the thermometers. So it's like a new toy. We kept taking our, our temperature and showing it to each other and saying, look, I'm still normal. I'm still normal. But about the sixth day into uh, the quarantine, I started to see my temperature start to rise. And then I also got a headache. So uh, as, it, as it kept rising and rising, we couldn't get it to slow down. And it got up to about 104 um, degrees. And it stayed there for quite a while. In fact, in the morning, um, it was still in between 103 and 104. Um, and it's, it was off and on for the next uh, three and a half days. Um, I had nausea, uh, which I, I wasn't able to eat, and um, the headache went away, but the fever was relentless. It, it stayed there the whole time. So um, that's what scared me the most, is just the, just the high temperature and uh, not being able to get it to, to come down to normal again. Right. And how many days did you have the high temperature? Uh, about three and a half days. Started in the evening, and then, uh, and then on, the, um, on the last day of the, of the fever, I woke up in the morning and uh, I was in a sweat and I thought, wow, maybe the fever's broke. And so I took my temperature and sure enough, it was it was normal. Actually, I felt like eating in, in the morning, nausea had gone away, uh, headache was gone and I felt really good. So you would have known you were sick without taping your temperature then because even without the thermometer, clearly you were ill. Absolutely, that, that fever was, something that I have not experienced. Right. Uh, my wife kept putting those uh, washcloths, wet washcloths on my head and then on my back, and I would take showers to try to get it to come down, but it just wouldn't come down. Um, so, yeah, that, I knew I was sick. And Melanie, you never showed any symptoms, even though you were in very close proximity to him. Right. I, I, can, I, I had, uh, like, hot flashes, but I found out that was just from my age. <laughs> but nothing else, no headache or... Or no body aches. Um, you know, I felt great. I was mm -hmm. lucky because I could take care of him. Right. Now, Dr. Johnson, you make the point that John's experience is probably going to be typical for the vast majority of people that contract this virus. Yes, yes. And that's why I think the practicality here is that this is a respiratory illness, which I think most of, our, most of us are going to contract at some point in, in the coming year or so. And I, you have a lot of very, very bright people here that have a lot of experience about these things. What I'm gonna say I think is a practical approach to it is that that's why people should stay home if they're sick. He stayed in and he didn't go out and infect other people, is that this probably is going to be something we all experience just like the influenza virus, which we all have exposure to and we all live through. And fortunately, our body develops an immunity to us and cures us from this. And I, I think that's where the practicality comes in and say, how do we deal with this and keep it from spreading? Because it potentially is more serious of a virus. Right. You mentioned something a few minutes ago about people that overreact. And there is a segment of the population that we used to refer to as hypochondriacs, and it's now illness anxiety disorder describes it more accurately in the DSM-5. And 
people that have illness anxiety disorder or those that have excessive concern and anxiety with having or catching a serious undiagnosed medical illness, although somatic symptoms are absent. So they don't have it, but they hear about it in the news, they read about it in the paper, and you know, they, they all of a sudden they think they have every disease that they read about. And this is a perfect storm for those people because if they're highly susceptible to becoming excessively focused on that, and there's this wall-to-wall media in our 30-minute news cycle 24-7, it's just all over saturation. You can imagine it's just the perfect storm of hell for those people because they're just absolutely certain. And that's why your point, Dr. Johnson, is this is not a death sentence. If you do get it, for most people, they're going to experience it, go through not unlike what John went through, and then recover. I think most people need to realize this is not a death sentence if you catch it for most people. It's a very small percentage of people that are going to die from this if they do get it. Yeah. Over half of the people who have been infected have already recovered, but there's no media attention to that. There's no media attention or play for people who have survived this with minimal to no symptoms, because of course that doesn't grab headlines, but that's important. But I want to get back to the whole issue of how can we really help reconcile what's going on now? Um, You know, and we take the point of the global economy and the markets plummeting, The markets didn't plummet because there was an absolute problem at this point with, you know, supplies disappearing. That's a small part of it. The markets plummeted because of the fear and the uncertainty and the volatility that potentially lies ahead. We have some measure of control over that. We have some measure of control over our response to that. So I think that the way to get through this is not to wait for a blanket to cover this fire or a wall to be a barrier to everything else. That's not gonna solve this. What's gonna solve this is our individual habits in our own home, our everyday practices. It shouldn't have taken a global pandemic to tell people that they need to wash their hands or to cover their cough or their sneeze, but sadly, that's the case. And if we can employ those habits and share that with everybody, we're much more likely to get through this. And that's gonna do a much better job of this than any other thing, any other measure that's taken by public health authorities or a government or anything else. So people shouldn't feel helpless. And uh, Feskin, that's what you were talking about, is you can do a lot to control this. It starts at home, it starts with you. Both of you are saying, we're not helpless here. There's a lot we can do to control this ourselves. Yeah, and again, I, you know, I, I wanna speak to your audience and sort of you know, not, not scold people for being frightened. That's the first thing I want to say, because honestly, I'm a little frank. You know, we probably all are. It's, it's very unnerving sitting on a high chair six feet away from people using my big girl voice to kind of, you know, talk to you. Um, but I think if people understand more about what they can do, it gives them agency. You know, right. so, so let's tell people what they can do. You know, the, uh, maybe the way to think about this is, I, always, I, say to my, I say to my kids, Think of the coronavirus as blue paint, okay? So somebody who's infected is coughing and sneezing blue paint and there's droplets of it all around. You probably can't go through life not touching something and getting the blue paint on your hands. Now, that's okay. We can't see this blue paint, but our hands are very tough and nothing's gonna get through our hands. But our hands are also the the vehicle through which the coronavirus will get in our bodies. So if we can be mindful about how we 
how we are with our hands. And believe you me, I've been trying it. I'm sure you've probably caught me on camera several times touching my face already. But if we can be mindful about where we place our hands and then this idea of washing, you know, get rid of the blue paint. Okay, I'm good for a bit. Maybe I can rub my eyes now. Um, you know, just when you're outdoors, uh, you're outside, the first thing I do when I come into my house, because, you know, my husband's older than me, I go straight to the sink and I wash my hands. I do the, uh, the soliloquy from Lady Macbeth, you know, the out damn spot. And I do that because I love him and I want to protect him. And I think if we, if we think of it like that, that, that there, you know, as, as Abdu was saying, there are things we can do in our behavior. And maybe the motivation of, for that is, is not fear, but it's actually, it's, we can do this. We can do this to protect our family and other people. Right. That, that can change behavior. Yeah, yeah? I, and I agree with, with much of what you're saying. Where I might take a little bit of issue is, um, while I don't want to be unsympathetic to people who are fearful, I think it's perfectly understandable when everywhere you look and you read, it's breaking news. Something disastrous has happened. Um, it's natural for people to be fearful when they see that. But what I would say is every time you go out of your home and you're in a public place, be conscious of the message you're sending out to everybody else around you. If you're wearing an N95 mask and you're perfectly healthy, what's the message that you're sending to your children, to your colleagues at work, to whoever's on the subway or the streetcar or in a restaurant with you? Do you think that that message is one that says, I'm doing the right thing, um, that I have a way to get through this, or is it a message that is simply propelling more fear, propagating more unrest and anxiety? I, I might argue that you're probably doing a little more of the latter than, than the former, and that's my concern. So while I certainly want to be sympathetic to people's points of view, I want everybody to bear some responsibility and take some ownership for what they're doing in their homes and outside of their homes. Of course. I'm, I'm going to push back, okay? You know, I've got a PhD in virology and you're an infectious disease doctor, so we can have these logical, nuanced conversations about it, but I'm not going to beat up on somebody who is so worried about this and so anxious about this that the only way they can get through this or go outside is to put a mask on. What I want to do instead is say to them, the reason a mask works at all is it's simple. It's a barrier. It stops you touching your face and your mouth and your nose. And so, you know, again, my little, I'm, I'm, I'm getting all your viewers to go now to their sewing machines and start making these masks, but really just having something on that gives you the, the uh, you know, the indication that you should not be touching your faces is, is going to work. I totally agree with you about people. It breaks my heart that we now have a shortage of, of masks for healthcare workers. That's not the fault of people stockpiling at home. That's the fault of, uh, you know, government or whatever that we've not put in place the correct preparations for a pandemic. Dr. Johnson, you need a comment? I want to give a third. Actually, it's a fourth perspective <laughs> since you have four of us here. Masks aside, this is a public health education issue is that we talked about this earlier. These are the vectors, okay? You can cough any surface that you happen to touch, okay? And you think about it, I haven't touched these part of the chair, you walk back and you open a door, somebody else has been there, they've coughed, they touched the door, they touched the elevator button, they've done all of these things. So these are the things that you have to realize. What's that phones, sir? The phones, everything that you phones touch, are surfaces, the worst. these can last for several days. Absolutely. So it really comes down to, you can't prevent, yeah. you can't prevent these things from getting on your hands, 
So when you go around and you touch all of these things that are potentially contaminants, and this is real, okay, these are real, we've already talked about this, is that you can wash those away and that's how you prevent the spread of them. Yeah, okay, you, getting back you to You touch zero, something, you bring it to your hands, you put it in your nose, and as I said, the ENT doctor said, you touch your nose 30 times a day, at least. Okay, so those are some of the things that you can self-contaminate yourself and then you can give it to other people. So the education part of washing your hands after touching surfaces and not necessarily even droplets. Okay, you don't have to be around somebody. You can walk through a door and touch a door handle. Somebody's been there before you. Melanie, John, thank you so much. Seriously, you're the first one that I've had the privilege of talking to that's endured this. I'm so glad that you look so healthy and so happy right now. And good luck to both of you. I hope you enjoy your next cruise and I hope you continue to do well. You look great. Thank you so much. All right, thank you for sharing with us. All right, next, a mother who says she is putting her entire life on hold and isolating herself in her home for two months to avoid getting coronavirus. Maria joins us via Skype from her home because she is locked away. So, Maria, thank you for joining us and talking about this. So you are self-isolating at this point, correct? Yes, I am. And... Tell me what your biggest fear is. Obviously, you don't want to catch the virus, but have you had the flu before? Yes, I have. Okay. Have you had other kind of diseases, respiratory diseases, and how did those go? Uh, I've had those in the past, and I've recovered from them, but I have underlying uh, medical conditions, and I'm afraid of catching this deadly virus that could potentially kill me. Right. And when you say it's a deadly virus, you are aware that most people don't die from it, right? Yes, I am. Okay. So what is it about this that causes you to isolate yourself when something like an outbreak of the flu, for example, doesn't cause you to isolate yourself? Uh, Being how contagious it is, it's uh, extremely contagious. It's the uh, unknown about it. We're still learning things about this virus every day. So um, I'm not, I don't want to take a chance on going out and being two feet next to someone and not knowing that they have it because they're not showing any symptoms. Right. And that's the scariest part is the symptomatic. And what do you say to people who think that you're, overreacting? Uh, I just have to trust my instincts. And um, I know uh, some people think I'm overreacting, but I'm just trying to do whatever I can to keep myself as safe as I can. Uh Malia, do you think that she's being reasonable in what she's doing and locking herself away the way she is? Well, so I think that um, a couple of points here. One is that I do think that, um, all right, let me back up. I'm not there in person either. And that's not because I am personally living in fear that this virus is going to kill me, right? But what I am afraid of and what we know from having seen this play out on the global stage over the last few weeks is that the virus is very contagious. It spreads quickly and it quickly can overwhelm the healthcare system with acute cases. So even though it's completely true that most people are at extremely low risk of dying of COVID-19, I still think that it's merited for 
people to take social isolate, social distancing measures like avoiding crowded spaces and staying away from airplanes. And that's actually why I didn't come today. I am not afraid personally that I'm going to die of COVID-19, but I think that the, a strong, swift, decisive public health response really is merited at this point, and that group events and things like travel should be canceled. Um, you know, I also want to address this idea that um, I noticed uh, that your guest has said she is deadly afraid of this deadly virus. So there are two parts there, right? I, I don't think that um, living in tremendous fear is helpful, and I think it is actually harmful. I wouldn't shame anyone for being afraid because we're being inundated with a very panicky media and a very uncertain situation. But I want to reassure people that I'm very hopeful that, as I said, a swift cooperative response today could mean we're seeing case counts go down in a couple of weeks. This could all be over if we do a good job on public health. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if we don't take social distancing measures and we don't engage in these public, these uh, personal hygiene measures that everyone is talking about, we will see this drag on for the rest of summer. And it will be really unpleasant, extremely disruptive to people's lives. And the healthcare system could be overwhelmed with acute cases, mm -hmm. which means that people who need care are not getting the kind of care that they need. Right. So we do need to take disruptive action in our lives right now. I really do think that. And I also really think that that will help. That will uh, help us get out of the situation that we're in and stop the epidemic. And we'll start seeing case counts go down. Maria, you're self-isolating now. How long have you been staying at home? I stay in at weeks at a time. Unless it's an extreme emergency, I have to go get something, uh, water or something from the store, which I've stocked up quite a bit on. I will always wear my mask when I go to the store in fear that uh, someone standing next to me is going to have that virus and they don't even know it uh -huh. and, and give it to me. And how do you feel at home? Are you comfortable at home? Are you at ease at home now that you're isolating yes. yourself? Yes, Dr. Phil. I feel safe at home inside my house. Uh huh. Are you normally an easygoing person or are you someone that's anxious, generally speaking? Uh, I do have anxiety in the past. Um, but uh, this coronavirus has got me in panic mode. Uh -huh. The reason I ask is one of the things that we do know is that many diseases are affected by stress levels. And the higher your stress level goes, your ability to fight off disease is really compromised because you essentially wear your resources down to the point that you're more susceptible to disease. So if you're experiencing a lot of anxiety, if you're having poor sleep or sleep disturbance, things of that nature, stress can really compromise your immune system and your ability to fight things off. So if you are in panic mode, if you are having high degrees of stress, probably 80-85% of illnesses are affected by stress. And so if you are going to be at home, it would be really valuable for you to spend some of that time really reducing the stress levels in your life, in your thinking, in your mind, 
to really calm yourself, quiet yourself, and get rid of some of the tension that you're carrying in your body because that does compromise your ability. There's an old saying, what I fear I create. And sometimes you can become so fearful of something that you actually make yourself susceptible to it just because of the stress that's associated with the panic that you're experiencing. So I would just caution you to really try to take care of your mental health as well as your physical health. Yes, Dr. Phil, I agree. Let's take a look at coronavirus myths and facts. I want to explore some of the videotape myths and facts about coronavirus. One, saline, garlic, and sesame oil prevent coronavirus infection. Have you guys seen this one? It's just Mm -hmm. been all over the place. I think we can label that as a myth, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, But really, I mean, that's what they're pushing out there that there's no vaccine to cure COVID-19. That is a fact, correct? But there's one being worked on. Yeah, two or three being worked on, yeah. Two or three being worked on. Quite a ways away. I don't think we can look to the vaccine to to, to be the reason that we get out of this pandemic. So good news. Again, it's 2020. Our ability to make vaccines and turn them around is so much faster than it was even with the last big flu. epidemic in 2009 and certainly with SARS. So within like a month, people have actually created what we call vaccine candidates. Now that's very different than having a vaccine that's been proved, but we very quickly got candidates that have been tested and China is testing out some of these vaccines now. So what I think might happen if they work, which is a big if, If they work, we'll probably start to hear quite quickly that these vaccines look promising. And then the challenge is, how do we quickly scale them up and get them out to people? That's the piece that is still hard to do quickly. But I, for one, gosh, would, you know, be very relieved to hear that we have some vaccine candidates that look promising. And now we just have the kind of production challenge, which, you know, the world should be able to take on. The timeline would still be... What, months? Yeah. Year? Yeah, months. Longer? At least. At least. So your point is that while this might be in the pipeline coming down, what's going to get us through this now are the things we're talking about, like our personal habits, our personal hygiene in terms of hands and keeping our hands washed and social distancing and some of the things necessary to eliminate being a carrier and spreading it or getting it, just being careful in that regard. Number three, face mask will protect from COVID-19. That's a myth, correct? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Why is it a myth that wearing a mask will not protect you from COVID-19? We've talked about it throughout, but just sum it up. I would sum it up and back it up and say that actually you're not like, unless you're a healthcare worker, real up close with a COVID patient, you are not going to get infected by what's in the air. Okay, so a mask protects you from that. And instead, you're going to get infected by what's on surfaces, on your hands and what you do. So a mask can kind of help in, you know, because it just stops you actually touching part of your face. But, you know, so can a headscarf. So it's it's maybe a false assurance to think that a mask can protect you, you know, for those reasons. Okay, so that's one element of several and probably not the key element Mm -hmm. that causes you to be susceptible. And like, for example, today, before we came in here, and people may notice that we spread the chairs here as an example of what people mean by social distancing. We don't have an audience in here today because, again, concentration of people, and if there's someone that is infected, they could easily spread it. 
but before we came in, all of these surfaces were wiped down with disinfectant. Everything was cleaned and wiped down. We at least start fresh yeah. when we come in. Now, if you guys were carriers and came in here and you've put it on there, then that's on you. Uh, but it was clean when you got <laughs> clean here. Clean afterwards. All I can say. <laughs> Not a chance. Not a yeah. chance. <laughs> all right. So four, infected people have traveled enough to spread the outbreak globally. That's a fact, right? Yes, absolutely. Now, let me ask you this, because I have seen videotape of this, and it seems accurate that we've got people flying into the United States now, students or whatever that are coming in from Milan. Italy has shut down Italy, mm-hmm. but have they really? I mean, we've got students flying in from Italy to JFK, and they're saying, we're not really being checked on either end. And so they're flying into the U.S., getting off the airplane, and just going out into wherever they're going into the U.S., you know, the, the, the horse is out of the stable by now. I, I kind of feel like it's probably not helpful to think that we can have any real effect by kind of focusing on the countries that have the highest number of cases. I think it's probably more effective to just accept we've lost round one against this virus. So now we're in phase two. It's here. It's probably not in massive amounts in many communities yet. And by practicing all the things that we've been talking about, being mindful with your hands, being, you know, considerate, staying a little bit away from people, maybe reducing, you know, social interactions, we can help slow it. We're not going to stop it. It's here. It's going to continue to spread in this in all countries. And our, really, our goal at this stage should be to slow the spread so that the people who do need healthcare services the healthcare services are not overwhelmed by a huge spike. And that's really what we're talking about with all these practices we're recommending people do. Let's do it, you know, for our friends, our family, the rest of our community. By our behavior, we can't stop it now, but we can slow it. Well, Dominique, for example, says that she and her fellow students were not screened after landing at JFK Tuesday, adding, she said, I was asked one question about why I was in Milan, and then I was way through. So... Even if someone's coming from a hot spot, you're saying, what's the point? Just let also, them flood the country? I'm, I'm being practical. There's, there's a limit to what we can do. So I was traveling in Asia last month, and every airport I was in, I, I was aware that I was going past these infrared cameras. So I had my temperature checked multiple times. I didn't know. Um, because, you know, they're not sticking a thermometer in my mouth, but they were definitely watching whether or not there was anybody with a spike. But I think that's also um, a little bit of a false reassurance because we can't... How do you screen people at an airport? Somebody who's infected but isn't yet showing symptoms, not yet got a fever. We don't have, you know, testing kits you can put in your iPhone and be like, okay, you're free, go. So again, I think it's probably better to just recognize that This has now gone global. Um, There's probably way, way more people already infected in this country than we know. We haven't yet been able to test people. And now it's time to switch our behavior to sort of thinking, okay, it's here. How can I mitigate it? How can I help to reduce the speed of the spread? Okay. Number five, not everyone who contracts COVID-19 has symptoms. That's a fact, correct? Absolutely. Number six, getting COVID-19 is a death sentence. We've talked about that. That is a myth. And a lot of people, actually, as bold as that sounds, a lot of people believe that if you get it, you're gone. China has slowed new cases, but the spread around the world is accelerating. That seems to be a fact if the reporting is correct from China. Eating Chinese food will make a person sick. 
that's just absurd. I mean, it's like <laughs> I saw a stat the other day that said 38% of the people questioned won't drink Corona beer. Oh, yeah. We should have Chinese and Corona beer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Just go out afterwards, guys, and do that. <laughs> so just drink Corona light. That's all. Who made these questions? Uh, uh, symptoms of COVID-19 take five to seven days to appear. True or false? That's usually true. Yeah. Yeah, in the vast majority of cases, there are a small subset of patients who will manifest later than that, but it's, it's quite rare. So I think that's a reasonable time frame to expect symptoms to emerge within. Okay, now, during that time that they're not showing symptoms, are they contagious? Yes. So they're contagious even if they're not showing symptoms. So that's your point about yeah. what are you yeah. going to do? And you're most contagious probably the first couple of days that you are showing symptoms as well. So, you know, the first symptom seems to be fever. And, you know, the, 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 you know that's, the, that's like 90% of people show that symptom. So I would say to anybody, you know, okay, if you get a fever, chances are it won't be COVID, but we do get, we all get fevers. So if you wake up with a fever and a bit of a temperature spike, I would just be like, okay, maybe I'm going to call in sick today. I'm going to see how this goes for one or two days. Not because I'm panicking, thinking I've got COVID, but because I can't rule it out and because I care about my fellow workers and my family, I'm going to kind of self-isolate for a couple of days. And then I'm going to get on the phone and talk to my doctor and my nurse and ask them for advice. Can someone get tested if they really think they may have it? It's, Do we have enough tests now for people to get tested? It depends on the circumstances, yeah. obviously. And part of this is just a, a matter of resources. And mm-hmm. I'm sure in the United States here, we've had more than enough of a conversation around <laughs> the accessibility issue being one that has been fraught with difficulty. Um, certainly, you can get tested. In Canada, we have a, a testing uh, protocol that's in place. You can't get tested simply because you think you may have potentially acquired uh, COVID-19, the virus that causes it. Um, There are circumstances within which it may be reasonable to test for, but the important thing is to call. Uh, Call your uh, local family physician, call your public health unit. You can have an educated discussion with them and they can guide you through the likelihood of knowing whether or not you may have been exposed and then give you appropriate recommendations with respect to either self-isolating for a period of time um, or to come in and get tested uh, with some advance notice. Do right. not show up at your emergency room <laughs> yeah. or at any clinic say, hey. and then say, hey, I might have COVID-19. Yeah. And then you can see everybody scatter. All right. Spraying your body with alcohol or chlorine or swallowing bleach will kill the virus. Obviously a myth, but seriously, it's been out there on social media. Uh, Coronavirus is man-made myth, right? This was not weaponized in China no. in some way. That's remember just remember I was I was saying these are all in in animals, especially bats, and there's just a whole bunch of them that you know it just takes one to pop over into a human, and then we've got a whole new virus. So right. this virus looks very similar to what's out there in the in the bat population. So right. we know that's where it came from. So, Malia, what are your top tips for anyone who feels sick right now? What would be the two or three things you would say to people that might feel sick right now? Well, uh, I am not a medical doctor, so it's I can only answer that question from the perspective of public health. And from that perspective, it's really critical that you self-isolate and don't spread whatever virus is making you feel ill to members of your community whether it's COVID-19 or some other virus. Um, 
And if I could also return to a point that we heard earlier from Dr. Johnson, uh, this idea that everyone's going to get it uh, eventually, and so why would we all panic about it? <clears throat> that may be true, that we all eventually get the COVID-19 disease, because we have a global population that has no one's ever had it before. So everyone who hasn't had it is potentially susceptible. Um, however, even if everyone ultimately gets the disease, I want to reiterate strongly that it's very important that not everyone gets it this month, right? It's very critical that we slow down the epidemic by practicing these measures that are very common sense things. You know, in my viral Facebook thing, I said, I literally said, don't pick your nose, wash your hands, stay away from large crowds. And action on that today can make a difference in how this epidemic plays out over the next month. And so you don't overwhelm everything at one yeah. time. We kind of polled everybody about what to do if you do feel sick and the points seem to be pretty universal among all of y'all ones. Don't panic, stay home and drink lots of fluids, get lots of rest, take over-the-counter cold medications, stay home 24 hours after a fever of 100 degrees is gone. Think it through, are you in a high-risk group? Do you live near a known outbreak area? And if so, self-isolate out of caution and call your doctor, as you were just saying, doctor, just don't show up in the emergency room and let them know. If you call ahead, they will make arrangements for you so they can isolate you when you come in. Listen, I think we've delivered a lot of information today. I suspect a lot of folks are going to watch this over and over because I think we've taken all the politics out of this. We've talked about it based on science in a rational sort of way, and I cannot thank you guys enough for being here and doing this. I'd like to thank all of my guests today, including Dr. Patrick Johnson, Professor Paula Cannon, Dr. Abdus Sharikawi, thank you so much for being here. Malia Jones, thank you. And don't forget to visit my website, drphil.com. We'll have lots of extra content there and all the lists that we talked about today. 